Welcome back to a Neurophysio podcast. Before we get to that, let's reflect on our last episode with Melissa McConaughey. Thoughts, Matt? Yeah, I found it really fascinating, Erin, on two fronts. One is I know that I struggle with when I've got large volume groups in my gym of uh, keeping it specific to the people in front of me. It's, it's often really easy to just drop into a generic exercise routine, but the way that uh, Melissa McConaughey talked about individualizing it based on the Parkinson's disease patient's presentations. So your hypokinetic dominant exercises versus your tremor dominant exercises. I think it's a really nice way of breaking it up. Yeah, I agree. I also reckon you need to be a pretty passionate, energetic person to run a group that really benefits people as well. And I wonder whether Melissa's really good at choosing those people that have the skills to run a group to a high standard. What do you think? I completely agree. I think that's really key, having the energy and having the drive to be able to keep everyone so, I guess, engaged is always a challenge as well, isn't it? Yeah, and I think something that I definitely need to work on, I can see at my workplace there's people that are better than that than others as well. So we tend to get those people to run the groups, which I guess everyone has their strengths and weaknesses in clinical practice too. I think the other thing that really struck me is I really enjoyed hearing about how much success that Mel's had based on, you know, keeping her focus really clinical. We've had a lot of people who have gone into, you know, public health or into research, but having such a strong, successful um, career based on the clinical aspect of the work was, you know, really exciting to hear about. Yeah, I reckon it's sort of come up a little bit in this podcast really that the pathways to success are often away from clinical or they're they're very much based in clinical to start with and then people move off from there. So it is really cool to see someone succeeding so much in that clinical space. You know, probably the other person that comes to mind is Katrina Williams with that as well. I feel like she Um, has done a lot of things but also really kept her clinical grounding too she was one of our earlier episodes and also Melissa's comment about not feeling guilty commercializing her product when she knows it's really really good high quality product I was like yeah good on her I, I agree with that yeah I can get behind that every day of the week So we're now in April 2021 and this month we spoke with a physiotherapist who is pioneering high-intensity therapy for the upper limb in the UK. Fran Brander is a consultant physiotherapist at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery at University College in London and she'll tell us all about her consultant role in this episode. But above all, Fran is an expert clinician as well, so another one coming on board the podcast And it was great to sit down with her as she shares her thoughts on what works and what doesn't in neuro rehab. Yeah, we've mentioned the Queen Square program a couple of times now on the show. So hopefully this episode will fill in all the gaps for those wondering about it. So uh, enjoy. And just a reminder, the people we interview on this podcast are representing their own views, thoughts and opinions as individuals, which are not necessarily the views of their employers, organisations or committees that they're associated with. Equally, the advice and information shared on the podcast is general only and should not be taken Welcome to a Neurophysio podcast. I'm Erin Bicknell. And I'm Matt Wingfield. And today we are very excited. Not only do we have our first international guest on the podcast, but we're also diving back into the clinical world. For those astute listeners, they would have heard multiple guests talk about Queen Square in London. So we thought we'd go straight to the source from the National Hospital of Neurology and Neurosurgery, Queen Square in London. Thank you very much for speaking with us, consultant physiotherapist Fran Brander. Thank you for having me. No problem, Fran. Uh, You're also a member of the Ward Lab at University College of London. That's Professor Nick Ward's research group, which we want to talk to you about as well. But before we go into that, can you share with us a little bit about your career and how it shaped itself so far? So I I always wanted to be a physio from the age of about 10 when I saw a video of children with juvenile arthritis and they were being treated by physios and I thought oh that looks a great job you're not sitting at a desk it looks active it looks just the kind of thing I'd like to do and I love kids so I thought I'd like working with children so I really from the age of 10 knew what I wanted to be which was a paediatric physiotherapist and obviously that's not where I ended up Um, I went I trained at Guy's Hospital School of Physiotherapy in the days when we used to train in hospitals, so I'm, I'm not going to say quite how many years ago, but I am coming up to a little anniversary, and uh, it ends with a zero. <laughs> we'll go no further than that. Sure. <laughs> and uh, did a placement, a student placement with um, paediatrics, 
And actually, I found it heartbreaking, too upsetting. And also, I really struggled with um, not being able to uh, negotiate with them and kind of reason with them what I wanted to do and, and having to bribe them or trick them into, say, taking a deep breath in order to cough, I, I found really difficult. I qualified and then uh, started work at um, St. George's Hospital in Tooting, where I did, I don't know if it's the same in Australia, we do rotational posts when we're first qualified. We, and, and in those days, they were four months long, the rotations, and you, you, spe- you went to the various different specialities. And I did that for three years. And by the end of the three years, I'd, I'd narrowed my specialities down to either MSK or neuro. But I really loved working in a team and in a multidisciplinary team. And I, I didn't feel you got that as much in musculoskeletal world. So I decided to specialise in neuro. I've been very fortunate in my career. I've always worked in big London teaching hospitals to date. And I've always worked in neuroscience kind of tertiary centres. So I've I've been very fortunate with my experience and my learning. I think probably more by luck than judgment. And I'm not sure I would consider myself to be hugely ambitious. And yet here I am as a consultant physio at Queen Square. So I, I don't quite know how I ended up here in answer to your initial question. But I am delighted to have been so lucky to do so. Frank, can you tell us how you actually become a consultant physio? Because that terminology, we don't have that in Australia, although we do have grade four physiotherapists, which which might be similar. But yeah, can you tell us more about it and we can hear what that means? I mean, there's a lot of discussion going on at the moment in, in terms of what, what does constitute a consultant therapist of any description. And there are kind of four pillars that your job should entail. There's the clinical expertise kind of area. There's research. There's education and uh, managerial. But I think there's a lot of people that feel that to be a consultant physiotherapist or any consultant therapist, you should be quite heavily into research. You should have potentially done a PhD, which actually I haven't and that there should be quite a high kind of academic component to it. And that's where a lot of the discussions, I think, are arising at the moment, because there, are, there is another aspect of looking at it in terms of uh, somebody that's very clinically experienced and has a lot of skills kind of along that pathway shouldn't necessarily be discounted. But your, your job role should have an element of all four of those areas. And, um, and mine does. And, and in answer to your question of how I got here, um, the job is advertised and you apply for it. So that is what I did back in 2008. Um, so I've been at Queen Square since, since then. And, and I think the thing that attracted me to it, from my perspective, was the clinical component. If I didn't have the clinical, if it was more managerial or just academic, I, I would... I would miss that enormously. Yeah, absolutely. I always find that Australia is a few years behind the UK in all sorts of different areas and particularly in kind of these sorts of issues or the frontiers of developing roles and things in physiotherapy. And I think we're probably going to have the same problems because those people that get into the the kind of grade four in Victoria, it's called a grade four level, there's probably those same four pillars and Sometimes the research is, is, you know, looked at perhaps more than the clinical, but then you lose the clinical expertise sometimes because it's hard to be so good at everything, isn't it? Absolutely. And to have, and to have time to do everything. And I think that the, the joy of having perhaps a mix of the two in those roles is that if we're talking with each other and conversing with each other, then it can bring the clinical world closer to the academic world and vice versa vice versa and it can make such a massive difference to the areas that that people start investigating in in terms of research and and making sure that it is relevant to to the real world the real clinical world because i think sometimes there are there are papers out there that potentially don't have the impact because they're so far removed from the real world and and what's available to clinicians that uh, implementation is 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 
just too difficult for people. Absolutely. I think clinicians and researchers would agree with you on that point. And you have added a lot of research to your our profile in the last few years, which we are definitely going to get onto through this podcast. But tell us a bit more about what Queen's Square, like what the whole hospital does but for listeners that aren't aware of the National Hospital of Neurology and Neurosurgery. It's quite a tongue twister, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's... it's, um, it's uh, a part of University College London Hospital, so it's part of that trust. And I guess you could see it as the as the neuroscience wing, in a way, or the neuro, neuroscience and neurology wing. Um, but it's based slightly slightly further down the road um, in Queen Square. It's a tertiary centre for neuroscience patients. It's a district centre for stroke patients. But we have an emergency kind of neuroscience and stroke pathway. We have uh, outpatient services, which are tertiary. We have specialist services, such as spasticity or orthotics or FES, or in terms of the multidisciplinary aspect, I guess things like video fluoroscopy and primary progressive aphasia service, complex splinting, that kind of thing. We also... um, I think it's quite renowned in terms of its expertise in diagnostics of of those really rare neurological conditions or, or, you know, if somebody's uh, presenting with a clinical picture that is a challenge, then they will often get referred to Queen's Square to really try and tease out what what the underlying diagnosis is and, and therefore if there is anything we can do about it in terms of treatments. And we also have a kind of a rehab component so we have a an acute stroke unit we have a level one I don't know if you call your rehab units level one two and three in Australia but no we haven't we don't use that terminology so if you wouldn't mind can you just quickly give us a a quick lowdown on how that works as well so um in in this country um our rehabilitations unit units are divided into levels one two and three and level three would be a district rehabilitation unit, still probably specialising in neuro or different areas of rehabilitation. Um, but the patients that go there will be less complex. They'll have a patients that are more medically stable and that perhaps don't have quite the need of so many different types of therapy discipline. And they're the I don't know whether you should ever say routine about um, rehabilitation, but they're, they're the less complex patients. And then level two units tend to be that that slight level up in terms of complexity. They're not quite so local, so they probably take a wider they take from a wider population. Generally, they they have patients that might have more medical needs, and again, still very specialist, but but able to cope with slightly more complexity than the level three units. And then the level one units are more tertiary, which is the unit that we have at Queen's Square. And they're usually run by a consultant in rehab medicine and or a neurologist and or a um, psychiatrist, depending on the particular speciality of the rehab unit. And patients are generally more, more acute or possibly slightly less stable so they tend to be attached to a a more acute hospital so they've got kind of various services that are available to them should the patient deteriorate and they're the more complex patients that you know for instance might have a tracheostomy or they might need two qualified therapists to treat and they're likely to have difficulties both physically from a communication point of view cognitive difficulties possibly behavioural, depending on the unit, mood, difficult social situations. And they're the far more complex patients that we're seeing more and more of now, given how good our medical services are, are getting these days. So we have a level one unit at, um, at the National for, um, for Rehabilitation. Um, and we also have a functional neurological disorder service for both inpatients and outpatients there as well. Uh, one thing you didn't mention, Fran, is the upper limb service that you guys run, which I know is your baby, which is what we want to get into. So let's go there now. 
Tell us about the upper limb service. What is it? Uh, how did it come about? All those sorts of things. Welcome to Fuller Butts, a behind-the-scenes plastic surgery podcast. Yes, you heard that right. Join your co-hosts, Dr. Sam Fuller and Dr. Dan Butts, board-certified plastic and reconstructive surgeons on an exclusive full-access pass into the world of plastic surgery. Combining their expertise and training, Doctors Fuller and Butts will share medical insights, detailed explanations, and lighthearted humor to keep you entertained and informed. We're certain you'll become passionate about the plastic surgery specialty and between debunking myths, uncovering truths, or just making you laugh out loud at their perspective on this creative and artistic field. We've got something for everyone. So uh, the Upper Limb Service is set up by myself and my two colleagues, uh, Professor Nick Ward, who you've already mentioned, and uh, Kate Kelly, who is a consultant occupational therapist that I work with at Queen's Square. And we were running a regular kind of rehabilitation multidisciplinary clinic to see, to see people's rehabilitation needs and possibly to see whether they should be admitted to the NRU. And we realized that there was a lot of people that had upper limb impairment post stroke or post neurological condition not not necessarily specific to stroke and that there was this kind of nihilistic view that upper limbs don't recover well after stroke or after neurological disorders and we felt upper limbs aren't often given the chance to recover well and is it that they don't recover well just because there's no hope that they recover well or actually do they tend to be neglected in our current health system? And we felt that it possibly was the latter and that actually people weren't given the opportunity to improve. And so Kate and I, uh, so we had a discussion about it and we thought it'd be really good if we could create some kind of um, upper limb program that gives people the intensity or dosage that might make a difference to them and um, if we really work hard at the at the arm, uh, can we make improvements? And can people with chronic neurological conditions um, on the on the whole stroke, but um, we do accept others, change as a consequence? And we started off, Kate and I, uh, in our normal job role, taking on um, we piloted six was it six or seven patients one at a time because it was in addition to our our normal job and some of them we saw for two weeks some of them we saw for four weeks two weeks felt a bit too short four weeks felt a little too long so um we decided when we when we when we put our case forwards that we would go for three weeks and because we were running this other clinic kind of for uh, to see whether people would come into NIU we were able to see the demand and to think about how many patients we might bring in. And uh, we did a business case and we started from there. And we started quite small. We had one OT, one physio, and I think we started with two patients, if my memory serves me correctly, um, in about 2014 or 2015. And then it's grown from there. Currently, we, uh, well, Pre-COVID, we had um, nine patients at a time with um, three physios, three OTs, and three RAs kind of on the treating team, which you'll notice is one-to-one -one kind of staffing to patient ratio, which could be argued we're very lucky, and we are very lucky, but actually we've had very good outcomes, so we, we've proven the value of it. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask, so it sounds like from that original business case, you grew from the outcomes that you were producing, but was it hard to argue that original business case? Because it sounds like that was for, like you weren't necessarily promoting to the managers that be that you would have all that many patients because you wanted to keep the ratios. Like how did you actually justify that originally? Well, I guess it was a combination of demonstrating the need, demonstrating the demand, demonstrating the 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 fact that there there wasn't such a service anywhere else and and this is kind of what Queen Square should be all about. 
as a, a national and tertiary hospital about kind of uh, developing new services and, and trying to lead the way where possible or, or certainly keep up with other uh, other areas. I think we also, I mean, that there has to be an element of a business case and, and I'm possibly not the person to speak to about finances. There's a reason I'm not given a budget in my um, <laughs> post because I would spend it very rapidly. <laughs> so I'm possibly not the ter- person to speak to about finances. But, you know, you have to argue the case that you're going to spend this amount on staff and you're going to receive this amount of money for bringing the patient in. And we're bringing them in as regular day attenders because they get a whole day's worth of treatment. And if you do that for three weeks, that's 15 days worth of regular day attendance. And and so I think the, the books seemed to balance. I mean, I, I never see that side of things, but from a financial point of view, our managers were okay with it. And because we started kind of relatively small but but gradually grew as 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 we became better known and as as people started referring more and then the demand got greater and then you get a waiting list and then of course managers don't like waiting lists so uh, then you can argue your case that you need to expand your services and you need to reduce your waiting list and um and and that involves a, a second business case. It helped that uh, that we were able to prove that we made a difference. You uh, you seem to be growing rapidly. So when was I there? I was in Queen Square about three years ago, and it was six patients and two therapists and two rehab assistants, two RAs, and now it's grown to to three. That's so. You, What's the what's the grand plan? Just continue to take over the world, Fran? <laughs> I'd love to. No, I mean, ideally, in all honesty, when we increased to nine patients and that number of staff, um, we we have the demand for twelve, and we could have doubled our service there and then, but the limitation at Queen Square, I don't know if you'll remember, Matt, is space. We don't we don't have sufficient space to house twelve patients and the staff involved in our rather cramped areas that we're working in already anyway. So um, so we couldn't increase to 12, so so we've gone to nine. How do you um, select your patients? So before we get onto the components of the program, just when we're talking about demand, you must have so many people that want to get onto the program. You know, how do you choose who's going to get on? So we get referred... We have to have a, a GP referral ideally because it's the it's um, it's the GPs that that pay. So we have to have a GP referral because then then they're then it's implicit that they've agreed to fund if if you bring them in and they come to clinic, which um, has myself, Kate, and Nick in the clinic, and we assess the patients. So we ask them a bit about their history. We ask them a bit about what rehab they've had prior to coming to see us in clinic, what input they got. We look at what movement they have, what they're able to do. We have very loose admission criteria. It certainly is not an RCT. I, um, it, it's, it, there's always a um, human component to it. But we look to see whether somebody had... We like somebody to have a little bit of grasp and release or or grasp and let go, a little bit of reach and perhaps a little bit of ability to bring their hand to their mouth. Because the whole ethos of the program is for us to enable people to start using their affected arm more successfully in functional tasks. And in so doing, they're then doing their own rehabilitation because they're using their hand more They'll be strengthening it. They'll be maintaining their range. They'll be improving their motor control through practice. And so there has to be an element of them being able to incorporate their arm in some form of function. And then the other question is, do they need the intensity? Do they need uh, the 90 hours that we provide over three weeks? Or actually, because everybody needs rehab, in my opinion, ongoing rehab, or actually, would would they be fine with a, a longer drawn out p- 
period of rehab, you know, from their local outpatient services or their local community services where they're, they're just guided in how best to, to continue to Im improve and, and, and recover their, their function back in their arm. Is there any uh, imaging biomarker? So you guys don't use TMS at all, do you, Fran? No, we don't. No, we don't. Um, it, it, it's not available clinically. That's the difficulty. So people, our, our clinics run on a, a Tuesday and a Friday morning. We, we don't have access to that kind of equipment clinically. And I, I, I'm all right with that because it's not an RCT. It is a service that we've, you know, we've published data from it, but it's a, a national health service that we're offering people. And because of the human component, there'll always be people that you just can't refuse. You know, they break your heart with the story they've got, or you know that if you don't bring them in, they're going to manage their arm poorly and they're going to end up with secondary complications that could have been avoided and that prevent any hope of them recovering because because they've ended up with a you know an art, a painful arm that's lost range for instance so as a clinician I'm I'm all right with the fact that we might bring people in that that you know have quite severe arms at time and and that might might not benefit in terms of their outcome measures but everybody benefits from having three weeks of rehabilitation are you capturing qualitative data to explore that because i think you're right you know if someone may not make great gains on i assume you're using the fugelmeyer and arat as your primary outcomes for uh, impairment and activity are you capturing any qualitative so we, we've we've published a, a qualitative paper with kate hayward looking at what the what the team so that the staff that worked on the service and looking at what the, the stroke survivors and their families thought were the key components, the, the, the important ingredients of program, we capture kind of patient feedback in terms of if there's any ways we can develop the program. But we haven't captured kind of qualitative data in terms of those people that haven't necessarily improved on their outcome measures. What, what did they get out of the program, if you know what I mean? What did they feel they benefited from? In, I know anecdotally what I feel they benefited from, but we haven't we haven't actually looked at that yet. And that might be another area that we that we want to explore because we don't. I mean, we will come onto it later, like you said. But we don't just treat the arm; we we treat the person. So even if their arm doesn't improve, there may be aspects of their life or their uh, themselves that do improve yeah absolutely let's go there now tell us about the program what are the core ingredients it's a really good question I don't think we know the core ingredients yet I can tell you what we do um but it's a bit like a cake you know you don't know if you left out the currants say would it make a big difference I don't know we haven't we haven't tried leaving any currants out yet so I don't know that we know what the core ingredients are yet. We know we know what we do, and I can tell you that, certainly. So as I said, it's a three-week program. Uh, patients attend Monday to Friday, and they attend from 9 o'clock in the morning till 4, 4.30 in the afternoon, and they have a lunch break, but otherwise no break, and it's boot camp, and they call it gruelling. Yeah, I noticed it's only a 30-minute lunch break, too. I was like, yeah. This is like a work day. Probably a little longer than 30 minutes. <laughs> and occasionally they do disappear off and you're not sure where they've gone. <laughs> but that's only occasionally. Hiding in a cupboard for respite. <laughs> so they, uh, they have two sessions of physio, two sessions of OT. Not every day, but they have OT, physio. They have rehab assistant input. We do group work, we do cardiovascular kind of training, we do lots of coaching and education. We think that's kind of a key area to enable the patient to, to know what their difficulties are, to know what their capabilities are, and to know how they can continue to challenge their capabilities once they've left the program. So that we're really advocating self-management because because we know that services drop off once you're in the, the chronic stage of, of stroke and so access to further therapy is often very tricky so if you can it's like the old saying you know rather than giving them a fish if you can teach them how to fish then they continue to recover and and I guess that's our, our fundamentally we're trying to teach them how to fish or teach them how to continue to improve their upper limb 
we get them to do individual practice sessions for themselves. Uh, we have access to various bits of technology that we might use. It's totally focused around their goals, so it's very individualised to them. And we give them homework to do at the weekends, and then they come back and they tell us how they've got on, and then we can tweak things. Or, But like I said, the whole ethos is around them being able to use their arm more successfully in everyday tasks. There's so much to unpack there. So let's let's try and do it in small parts. You'd mentioned the education component, which I think is a great a great thing that you, you mentioned there, because especially thinking about analogies with something like constraint-induced movement therapy and literature there, the transfer package is so important to that as a package, as a CMT, as a whole treatment. So you know, that, that's obviously a, a huge focus. Do you do something like CAMT with people as far as you know the actual treatment method that you use, or is it a bit of an eclectic mix of everything? I mean, I guess you could say we do aspects of constraint-induced movement therapy. We don't constrain their other hand generally, because a lot of what we use our hands for in everyday life are bimanual tasks. And so you're making their life really hard if you take away one of their hands, whether it's their affected one or their unaffected one. So we don't constrain them, but but the intensity, which I think is a, a, a large element of constraint-induced movement therapy, we do. Uh, and they're, they're using their arms. We had a um, an MSc student who came uh, and observed us for over a hundred hours so that we could see actually what is it we do we think we know what we do but what what do we do and the good news and the good take-home message from from what she discovered is that our patients are active 85 percent of the time so it's not passive and they do 920 odd reps a day so so their arms are very active um, and they are very active and so I think because it's such an intense program, you you don't need the mitt to stop them using their other arm because they've constantly got other people, whether it be other people on the program, other staff members or whoever, or family members that have come with them, kind of reminding them that, you know, they've got to use their affected arm. And I guess they're so focused on that anyway, because that's why they're there. Um, and then in terms of shaping, uh, you know, as physios, we, we work at an impairment level as well. So so uh, so we would do that naturally, I think, as part of our physiotherapy intervention. And I know there's a big debate in uh, the physio world at large, or certainly there is on Twitter about hands-on or hands-off. Uh, we, we do do hands-on with the aim that we will have hands-less on as the weeks go by and, and patients become more independent and more able to, to move their arm and, and we found that that is the case. I want to ask Bobarth versus non-Bobarth. Obviously you know, repetition and those sorts of things are really really crucial and I know that um, the perception anyway is that that's not a huge focus of Bobarth. There's lots of Bobarth people working through the National Hospital does that make its way onto the Queensgrave program or how does that sort of fit in or does it not fit in? We are almost all Bobarth trained physiotherapists at, at the National. And I guess I guess the Bobarth or the not Bobarth goes back to the hands-on or the hands-off. And I find it very difficult to work out how to help the patient move an arm that they can't move at all without putting your hands on. And... I think we learn through experience and if you don't experience your arm moving how how is it going to start moving so then I think it comes down to semantics myself uh, you know if I call it active assisted strengthening of the arm is that better than saying I facilitate somebody's movement and perhaps it isn't if you're a Bobarth therapist and perhaps it is if you're very anti-Bobarth and I Call me old-fashioned, but I, I'm a physiotherapist that likes to use their hands and likes to use my clinical knowledge and my clinical experience. I am aware that the patient needs to be active and I am aware that they need to be able to continue doing what they're doing without my hands on them. That's always my goal, 
but if somebody can't stand without you helping them to stand by supporting their knee or support then how are they ever going to experience standing i guess you could argue you could use splints but i'm not sure what the difference is then no i'm in agreement with you it's a debate that obviously continues to rear its ugly head that i don't think is very productive in the clinical space personally i'm not sure it is i i think um as as a therapist uh when you're treating a patient you've got a goal in mind for that treatment session and you assess as you are treating them whether you're achieving that or not and if you're not achieving it because of what you're doing you have to change what you're doing and i i think that's something that therapists generally do and I don't think we do the same thing for every patient. So some people can cope with hands-on and some people can't. And, and so you vary what you do for the individual, is my opinion. And that might be com controversial as well. But I think we've got a bit bogged down in it. I think a lack of evidence that something works better than something else uh, doesn't mean that both of them don't have an effect, I think. And I wonder whether we're asking the wrong question in some respects. Yeah, it's almost like too much focus on the binary, the either or. Yeah, I agree. You know, and like I said, I, we don't know what the key ingredients are of our program yet. And, and, and that is an area that we want to look at. And it, it might be that actually if, if, if we did a program with no hands-on, and actually we have started a program with no hands-on, um, it might be that you still have good effects and... Uh, you know, and that's okay. But in my opinion, you can't kind of help somebody stretch a muscle or whatever without without touching them at some stage. So another part that you mentioned was the tech and the different sort of technology pieces that you have access to. So can you tell us about those? What do you use? So we are we're very lucky. Uh, uh, Nick is. Um, I, have you met Nick, Matt? He's quite a persuasive man, and he managed to get funding from the UCLH charities for um, various robotics. So we've got the um, Herkoma Armio Spring. We've got the Tyro. They call it the Tyro Solution, which is the Diego, the Pablo, the Amadeo, and the Miro. So the Miro is like a big iPad, massive iPad, tabletop thing. The Diego is my favourite. It's um, a de-weighting for the arms, but it de-weights your arm the same amount, no matter how elevated or, or lower it is. So rather than these spring de-weighters that if you're trying to lower your arm, you've actually got resistance. And the higher your arm goes, you've got less assistance. It, it kind of does it the, the whole way through and there's no kind of limitations in terms of how the arm the arm of the machine works because it's just cords so you're you're free to move fluidly with with kind of the same amount of de-weighting everywhere so that's a great piece of kit then the um, Amadeo just looks at finger movements and the Pablo is for kind of probably more severe arms so it's slightly lower level and then the Hakoma Armio Spring is is one of these. It's like an exoskeleton, really, that it helps helps enable. And you play it with all of them. You can play games whilst you're doing them. But with things like the Diego, you can also use it more functionally if you can kind of set set it up. So that's kind of the high tech that we have. Uh, we also have we we just kind of received some kinematic bits of kit but then we went into lockdown so we haven't kind of used that clinically yet but that's quite exciting because it, it will hopefully show us whether somebody's motor control changes as a consequence of our input and and if we can prove that then then that would be really exciting because that would um, argue against those that think that perhaps we're just unmasking ma ma uh, learned non-use or you know people aren't kind of recovering at a, a at a motor control level they're just kind of recovering at a functional level if you see what I mean really hit that behavioral restitution approach yeah the, the important thing the important thing to say about tech i think is and, and we've learned this through mistakes in all honesty is that they should never be used as a way of a kind of entertaining people or giving them something to do when you've got nothing else to give them they for them to be at all effective they really need to be clinically reasoned so 
we would never use all of our bits of kit on one person because they're kind of aimed at different impairments or different impairment levels. Um, so, so you need to really clinically reason what it is that you're trying to achieve when you're doing it. And it just gives you another way of, of peeling the apple, so to speak. So it gives you another way of, of, of uh, another form of intervention. A, a bit of variety can keep the patient's interest up a bit. But they're not the be-all and end-all. And actually in our qualitative paper, when we were asking the stroke survivors what they, what they found the most beneficial, they barely mentioned the tech actually. It was more other aspects of the program that they, they thought were good. They liked it and they liked the fact that there was this enriched environment and that you know, they didn't do the same old thing the whole time. But but they didn't say, oh, the best bit's the robots, fortunately. <laughs> I think I'd have been a bit upset if they had. Yeah, that might be in our future in the next 20, 30 years as physiotherapists, but we'll hold it off for now. It is, it's interesting, I haven't thought about that before, probably should have, that, you know, in an intensive program like you're running, having a variety of different activities that keep people interested, and you know, keep the um, good neurochemicals firing could actually be really important. Well, definitely. And, and I think that's what people love so much about the program. So we had one young, young lad came on. And he said, Oh, I love it, because you've taken me to play tennis, and you've taken me swimming. And it's not just boring old exercises the whole time and and it's like yeah you know and and if we're going to get you using your arm again we've got to get you using it for things that are important to you but equally you still you still need to help with the strengthening component and the trying to improve their motor control and we are still very much um, at Queen Square about the quality of the movement which I guess goes back to the whole Bobath debate again as to is quality of movement important. We believe so, and so we do try and improve people's quality of movement because if, if that improves, then they become more efficient potentially and then it becomes easier for them. But I think, yeah, I think if you're doing the same thing all day long, every day, it would be, we'd lose, we'd lose them. Three weeks' worth of that would be dull beyond belief. So if that individualization and targeting people's interests and motivation is really important which let's face it um, we all think it is and also the literature is showing that it is too how do you then go about researching what parts of the program are contributing more than others you know because you mentioned before that you're starting to think about doing that like how on earth do you approach that I don't know (laughs) Uh, I think the first thing is to try and describe better what we do. So, so we're thinking about um, using the tidier checklist and and really kind of honing in on what it is we actually do. And then I don't know what do you do? Do you take one bit out, or I, I honestly don't know. And that's what I love about uh, the Upper Limb Program. It it's. It's truly interdisciplinary. The OTs and the physios and the RAs and the patients and their families all work together as one very cohesive unit. There's no, there's no worry about, uh, you know, whose role it is to do whatever. They, we just work as a really cohesive interdisciplinary team. I, I almost think it would be impossible to, to think about which ingredients are, are the most important and which are the least. And does that matter? What, what we do works. I guess it might matter if it meant you could spend longer doing the things that were most effective. But actually, it wouldn't be a, a Christmas cake without currants and raisins and cherries <laughs> and nuts and everything else. And it would be a different type of cake. So, so I, I don't know. I think there are, I think it's important for us to be able to describe what we do so that other other services could think about providing similar things so kind of being able to to describe what we do so that it can be implemented more widely I think is really important we're also thinking about potentially using our waiting list as a as a kind of a control group uh, so we can prove that it's actually the therapy that's making a difference because we currently don't have a control group and then, you know, I mean, to be honest with you, we don't even know whether three weeks, five days a week is the best way of 
doing it or whether if you did it for six weeks for half a day or if you did it three days a week for however long. You, do you know what I mean? I mean, there's so many unanswered questions. So one of those never-ending philosophical questions that I don't think we're going to get to the bottom of. <laughs> if we knew that, Matt, we'd be rich. Yeah. There's hope for us yet. Or prof, prof profs, double profs or something. <laughs> Fran, you mentioned taking the program to you know other centres and other parts of the world. What about to other parts of the body and other disciplines you know does this model do you think this model could apply in other areas of rehabilitation yeah definitely at, at queen square we're looking at kind of developing other similar services um they've uh, already done a year's worth of icap i don't know if you've heard of icap but it's i'm going to get i'm going to get what it stood for wrong but it's something like intensive communication and aphasia program but it's basically an intensive program for people with aphasia and they started with a kind of similar program to ours so it was three weeks intensive uh, five days a week regular day attendance with predominantly speech language therapy but also a bit of psychology and lots of kind of communication uh, conversation partner training and things like that and they've had very good outcomes they've also had to stop because of the pandemic um, and they're looking to start up and they they're looking I think to change it to a four-week program so four days a week um, I think that level of of thought and concentration is almost harder than sitting on an exercise bike and you know there are periods when you're doing physical rehab where you can have a bit of a breather I think the level of concentration required for for I think they found really exhausting and um, so they're just trying to see whether it makes any difference I think it's expanding it out but they've they've had amazing results and then we're we're looking at, but um, funding might be an issue for all of these things. But we're we're also looking at a a cognitive a similar program for cognitive rehabilitation. Although that'll be kind of four week four weeks intensive, and then extended to kind of twelve weeks, with people kind of trying to implement the strategies in their own homes and in their naturalistic environments with kind of follow up you know on a less intensive basis but our follow-up for upper limb is at six weeks and six months theirs would be you know kind of twice a week or whatever for the next eight weeks so it needs a bit of adapting because um obviously again you know people's cognition you need to be able to attend um quite well to do an intensive program for cognitive rehab and um, um by the very nature of their condition they can't necessarily so um, so whilst it would be what would be considered intensive, I don't think it would be as intensive perhaps as six hours a day, five days a week for, for three weeks type thing. And then finally, we're, we're also looking at thinking about similar for gait and balance with with the aim, kind of our functional aim for the gait and balance program would be to, to change somebody's um, space. So if somebody's say bed bound, can we get them able to walk, you know, within their house? If they're housebound, can we get them to walk out into their garden uh, or out in further into the community or, you know, so that it's it's about ex expanding their horizons, their, their quality of life, that kind of thing. But they're, they're kind of plans in the making, you know, we need space, we need money, we need, so it, who knows whether that will happen. You know, I see no reason why, um, why it couldn't work for for any area of the body to be honest it's just and we don't you know we call it an upper limb treatment program but we don't we don't just treat the arm the the msc student that watched us for 100 hours worked out that we did actually we did arm treatment 50 percent of the time and the rest of the time we did other and nick was like what <laughs> yeah but, yeah but it's important you know gait and balance affects your arm your arm affects your walking and your balance um, you know, cardiovascular fitness is really important. Education or, or some of the prep work that we do can make a massive difference to the input you have. So, so although it's an upper limb program, it's not just about the arm. And I think, uh, I think people in general would benefit from more intensity holistically in their rehabilitation. And I think the thing that stops us providing that as therapists are the constraints we have in terms of resources. 
in terms of staffing or you know community services are funded to see people for six weeks or what have you well Fran it's been a very enriching discussion today we've hit a lot of home truths and it's been wonderful to hear your clinical experience and thank you for sharing that with us is there anything else you wanted to add before we wrap up what Nick, Kate and I are trying to do and, and what a lot of people are trying to do at Queen Square is we're trying to show what's possible. And I think a lot of research, and this is not the fault of the researchers, this is potentially the fault of the funders, is, is, is limited to pragmatic research of what might be possible within our current systems. And actually... Until we start doing more aspirational research in terms of what's possible, I think it's very it's going to be very hard to change those systems to allow them to provide what, what patients potentially would benefit better from. And I think if you look at the acute kind of medical response to stroke and the fact that thrombolysis and thrombectomy is now so widely performed and, and undertaken and yet is potentially a very expensive kind of service and there's no way that hyperacute stroke units or acute stroke units could have done that um, in the way the services were, were at the time and the changes they've managed to make because of that perhaps rehabilitation needs to kind of try and do a bit more aspirational research so we can try and change what what is currently offered to patients i like it more of the blue sky thinking more of the blue sky thinking matt you know you guys are at the forefront of this and i hope that people reading about your story and your program will follow in your footsteps because you know you really need a groundswell for this sort of change don't you absolutely i mean we've got we've got to get the message out there and then people need to take on the baton. And then we've we've all got to keep kind of proving that it, it works. Thank you so much for joining us uh, this evening slash this morning, depending on where we are. <laughs> You're very welcome. There you go. Such an important message for all of us. Are we being limited in the current research paradigm? And are we limiting people's potential for recovery after stroke because we don't provide for what's possible? Obviously, there's the big question of money to do these things as well, but it's probably not good enough for us to feel limited just by that. Yeah, it's a tough world out there for clinicians when we don't have the resources, but with places like Queen Square showing us what's possible, it's definitely a kickstart in the right direction, that's for sure. Well, next month, we are keeping on the topic of stroke, sitting back down with Nat Finney from the University of Melbourne, who's just finished her PhD in physical activity and cardiovascular risk after stroke. Yep, she's a clinician who recently moved into academia and teaching undergrad physios. So we'll see you next month being neuroplastic fantastic.